you are a guest with us, we kicked off a new series last week called A Cross-Shaped Life. We were in Mark chapter 8 and we heard Jesus uh, call to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow Him. And today we're continuing that series and we're not in Mark, we're in Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 and we're going to start in verse 6. And so I want you to go ahead and get there. And as you are turning, I want you to imagine a world full of persuasive teachers, competing ideologies, claiming the one true way to a happy and fulfilling life. I want you to imagine a world where traditional religions exist alongside mysticism coming out of the East, weird beliefs about angels and otherworldly beings, and an almost worshipful reverence for the created world. Now, does that world sound familiar to you? It sounds a little familiar to me, but I'm not talking about the America of 2021. Even though you see the kind of self-help mantras that are on all the magazines and the grocery stores, and on social media feeds with influencers with 10,000 people, they spout the same kind of stuff. But I'm talking about the ancient city of Colossae in the middle of the first century A.D., and the Christians who were living there, they, they were a lot like us, every day bombarded with countless ideas, philosophies, religions, worldviews, claiming to provide the one way to a fulfilling life. You know, that one secret thing, if you'll just do this, your life will finally make sense. You can imagine, without much difficulty, how difficult it would be in such an environment to maintain consistent focus on Jesus. It's like running the gauntlet of religious pluralism. You know what I mean? Like being bombarded with these ideas and trying to make sure that we don't become one of those churches that start to infuse belief in Jesus with all kind of worldly attitudes. It's a gauntlet of religious pluralism. It's like a sea marketplace of ideas, constantly tossing us and turning us by every wind and wave of doctrine, threatening to sink the ship. And that's the context of Colossians 2. The Apostle Paul writing to a church surrounded by competing ideologies and philosophies, trying to get them to hold fast to Jesus and not to let the world's wisdom interfere. So this morning, I think it's necessary for us to pay really close attention. And if you were in a chair, I'd say scoot it in real close. But you're not, so just lean forward maybe and pay attention because this is what we're going to see. We don't need, you hear me, we don't need the world's wisdom. We have fullness of life through the cross of Jesus. So I hope you see that this morning as we work through this passage. We're going to take it in two parts. We're going to go look at verses 6 through 8 and then 9 through 15. So let's start here with Colossians 2, verse 6. The 2 is the chapter, 6 is the verse, if you're not familiar with the Bible. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And this is what God's Word says. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted in and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception 
according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Sorry, I I said we were going to take it in two parts and I got it carried away, but let's finish. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. All right, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Because I want you to see first the dangerous distraction of the world's wisdom. And that's where Paul starts. He starts here in verse 6, speaking to this church, and it's a little church, kind of a backwater town, 100 miles inland in modern Turkey from the ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a cosmopolitan place, really wealthy, the sort of religious center of the eastern world. Colossae was inland, not quite as significant, but that church in Ephesus started getting really healthy, started getting really committed to Jesus, started thinking about their wider impact. And apparently a man named Epaphras had come to Ephesus maybe for business and had heard the gospel in that Ephesian church. And he'd gone back home to Colossae and started a new church. And uh, this isn't my sermon, but you just think about what God might could do with a church like that today, how he gets a church healthy and it overflows its banks and it starts to have an impact beyond. But see, because it had started out of another church, it didn't have a direct connection with the Apostle Paul that the Ephesian church did, or the Philippian church did, or the Corinthian church did. And so he got word that there was a group of Christians meeting in this sort of small town, Colossae, and, and they were starting to bear some fruit. And so he wrote them this letter, and verse 6 really summarizes his aim. He wants to make sure that they continue walking in the way they learned Christ. He said, walk in him. And I think the image he uses is so beautiful. You know, he talks about the church as if it were a tree. And he envisions that body of Christ in Colossae as having roots that are sunk deep. Not in the ground, but into the truth that is Christ. And because their roots are deep in Jesus, they have a firm foundation from which they can grow tall. They can grow up into maturity. But there was one problem. They were surrounded by a world of competing ideas. So Paul knew that the one thing, and listen, the one thing that will sink a church from God's perspective is bad theology. Bad theology. A church can be full of people and have the appearance of life, but not know the Lord Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul said, hey, you guys learned Jesus from the beginning. Stay rooted to him and grow up in him. Listen, the world's wisdom is a dangerous distraction to that kind of growth. Colossae was this town, this sort of where the east meets the west. And because of that, there were all sorts of philosophies. One commentator called it a melting pot of philosophies, religions, and worldviews. And Paul wanted the Colossian church to know the danger these philosophies were to their walk with Christ. So we ought to take it, try to understand what he means. He calls them philosophies. Philosophia is the Greek word. It's a compound word from love and wisdom, the love of wisdom. The ancient Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, had really tried to devote themselves to answering a simple question that plagues people everywhere, a question you've asked. What does it mean to live a good life? When I'm, de- when I'm dying at my deathbed and look back on my life, how will I know if I've lived a good life or not? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they try to answer that question. 
By the time the first century comes around, though, they have sort of left behind that heady stuff and gotten down to the real practical. There are two main philosophical schools, the Epicureans, who believed that life was short and full of trouble, so the good life was a life lived in the pursuit of pleasure. You know their catchphrase, maybe you even have adopted it for yourself at times. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the Epicurean philosophy. That's one way of living. Then on the other side, there were the Stoics, who believed that life was full of trouble, and so a good life was lived sort of detached in your inner self, pursuing virtue to be a good man in the midst of a raging sea. That was the Stoics. But also, Judaism thought of itself as a philosophical system. In fact, the, uh, the ancient Jewish uh, philosopher Philo talked about the different sects of Judaism, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, as different schools of philosophical thought, each trying to answer what it meant to live a good life. And so you could imagine a Colossian person hearing about Jesus and maybe just thinking that Jesus is one particular philosophy among many. And so you could take your pick, and if you like some of the things the Stoics said, well, maybe you could find a way to integrate that into the way of Christ and find this, you know, if Jesus is good, well, hey, there's some good stuff out there. Let's just combine it, and it'll be even better. But not according to Paul. These philosophies aren't neutral. In fact, he said you don't adopt philosophy. He said you get kidnapped by philosophy. You get taken captive by philosophies. These preachers, the philosophical schools to Paul, were not objective purveyors of truth. They had an agenda. They wanted to wrap people in, like cult leaders today, who start with a little bit of truth so they can get their hooks in people and suck them in. That's what Paul says these philosophies are all about. And whereas the gospel that Paul preached and the Colossians had received from the beginning was full of truth, Jesus says, Thy word is truth, the gospel is truth. These philosophies were empty and deceptive. While they claimed some angle on truth, really all they were doing was regurgitating human traditions. That's what Paul says, the traditions of men. Paul will later, we're not going to look at it today in detail, but later he's going to identify some of these ideas that were swirling around and even finding their way into the Colossian church. Look with me at verse 16. He says, therefore, no one's to act as your judge in regard to food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. But apparently some of these philosophizers had come in and said, hey, Jesus is good, but you need to follow Jesus and also observe strict rules about what you eat and drink. It's also important that you observe the Sabbath day in a very particular way. In verse 18, he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, those who take their stands on the visions they've seen. Listen, the worship of angels has no place in the church. Paul says that, but apparently the Colossians didn't realize. And they'd allowed some people who had these ecstatic visions, talking about angels, to lead them astray. In verse 21, he says, they say things like this. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul says in verse 23 that these matters have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But get this. They are of no value 
against fleshly indulgence. These philosophies aren't a neutral complement to the gospel. They're empty, deceptive, and a dangerous distraction from the life the Christians had been called to live in Christ. That's why whatever the philosophers might have told those Colossian believers and whatever the philosophers of our day might tell us, they don't offer us a clear way into some deeper meaning of life. Paul knew that choosing to live according to any other standard than Jesus Christ I talk fast. Let me say that again. Paul knew that choosing to live according to any other standard than Christ is a clear recipe for spiritual death. And so that's why a consistent theme of his preaching is the wisdom of the world versus the way of Christ. He says in Colossians 1.23, Brothers, when I came to you, I didn't come to you preaching with eloquent words of wisdom or persuasive speech. I came preaching Christ Jesus and him crucified. That's why he could say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians eleven three 3, that in, in the same way that the serpent came and deceived Eve, he was worried that maybe the serpent was still at work, bringing people, drawing people, deceiving people away from the simplicity that's in Christ. That's why he could say to the Galatians, listen folks, if anybody comes to you preaching a different gospel, if it's an angel who appears before you, and they're preaching some other gospel than you heard from us. Even if we ourselves come and tell you that we have discovered some new truth, some new angle, some deeper meaning to the gospel, let that person be accursed. Paul knew these philosophies aren't compliments to the way of Jesus. They are dangerous distractions then and now. You know, we sometimes get focused on these things even today. You know, silly stuff like what we wear to church, traditions of men, what kind of songs we sing, traditions of men. I've even heard people get all fired up about what translation of the Bible you use. Of course, there's all the different sort of lifestyle standards. I remember growing up, maybe they said it in Texas, they for sure said it in Alabama, I don't smoke, drink, dip, or go with girls who do. Right? And we make all these sort of man-made rules that we add on top of Jesus. But we all do realize that there are going to be people in heaven who dressed differently than us, who sang different songs than us, who read different versions of the Bible. There are going to be people in heaven who drank beer, who smoked cigarettes. As a child, I would have never believed it. But now I know that that's not what matters. Those additional rules and regulations that we so easily foist on other people are dangerous distractions from the truth. That a person is saved not by the way they live, not by the way they dress, the songs they sing, the version of the Bible they read from, or the lifestyle they have lived. They are saved by grace through faith alone. So these philosophies aren't neutral complements to the way of Jesus. They are fundamentally dangerous distractions to the life that Jesus provided for us on the cross. But it's not just dangerous distractions. They're also unnecessary additions to the fullness of life that we've received in Christ. And that's what Paul gets into in verses 9 through 15. And he really draws their attention to three major metaphors, one of which is pulled from the Old Testament and the Jewish system. Then he talks about baptism. Then he talks about Jesus' cross. And so we're going to read this now, verses 9 through 15. 
For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he's the head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, I love this, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now listen, if you want to know why these philosophies, this worldly wisdom, is at best an unnecessary addition and at worst a dangerous distraction for the fullness of life that's available to us in Christ, you have to start in verse 9. And it begins with understanding the fullness of life that is rooted in the person of Christ. Paul says that all that God is, listen, all that God is was bodily manifested in Jesus. The fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in him in bodily form. That is a wondrous mystery. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. That the eternal Son of God, who has been with God from the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That that eternal Son of God in the fullness of time took on human flesh and lived among us. And not just, and this is what we're tempted to think, not just sort of as an example of what God would be like if he were a man, but actually as God in the flesh. The author of the letter to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1 that he is an exact imprint of God's nature. That there is no other God somewhere hiding behind Jesus. That Jesus is the fullness of God in human flesh. And so the fullness of life that we're talking about this morning is a fullness that's rooted in this identity. That Jesus took on himself a true nature to identify with us. Because of that, the Colossians didn't have any need for some additional philosophy to add on top of Jesus. They didn't need some other route to God. Jesus was God in the flesh. It wasn't possible for them to have any greater access to God than what they got through him. Like the way one commentator put it, he said, they already possessed unrestricted access to the power of God. So you can imagine these philosophers who say, yeah, Jesus is great, and he's going to save you from your sins and all that good stuff, but if you really want to experience the fullness of God in your life, really want to have a vibrant relationship with him, well, this is what you have to do. And Paul says, no way. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If you want to know the fullness of God, all you got to do is know Jesus. And so Paul tells them, you don't need these philosophies. You have Christ, and in him you're already, did you catch this word? Made complete. My Bible said made complete. Your Bible may said you're already being filled. There's a play on words in the Greek. But the idea is that in Christ, because you and I are connected to him by the Holy Spirit in an inseparable bond, that the fullness of God that is in Jesus is now in you and me. And God is filling us up from the inside out with all that Jesus is. 
And so when the worldly wisdom comes, it whispers to us, doesn't it? It preys on feelings of inadequacy. We see other people talk about maybe their prayer time, and they talk like they actually communicate with God in their prayer time. But for us, it kind of feels like we pray, and the prayers just bounce down from the ceiling. And so we think that, hey, whatever that person is doing, I need to start doing that thing. And maybe you've been here, I was here, I've been there, where you start copying other people's specific spiritual practices. You know, my dad always journaled his prayers. And so I just assumed because my dad was a godly guy and talked with the Lord that if you really wanted to know God and really want to have an active prayer life, you had to journal your prayers. But maybe you know that journaling your prayers can feel a little oppressive. Maybe you see godly people in your life. You're like, well, why are, how did they get to be so godly? We, we think that maybe these different additional things, these practices or these ideas are somehow going to help us become what they are. Worldly wisdom preys on FOMO. You know what FOMO is? The fear of missing out. And we think that, hey, we don't have it all together like they do. We don't know what they're up to. How did they get to where they are? We're afraid that somehow we're going to get left behind. And so this worldly wisdom preying on our feelings of inadequacy and FOMO tells us that we need what they've got. We see it on the advertisements. You want a fulfilling and happy life? Come to Sandals, Jamaica. Buy a Lincoln Navigator. Get a group of friends who are going to take you out on the weekend. Right? That's what you need. We need 10,000 social media followers so that we can be sponsored and, and you know, show off all kinds of stuff. Obviously, I'm stretching there. I have no interest in being a social media influencer. But that's what worldly wisdom will do. It'll tell you that you don't have it together, that you're missing out, that you're inadequate, and what you need is what it can offer you. But Paul says, y'all have already got what you need. you got everything you could ever ask for. You have unrestricted access to divine power. You have the fullness of God with you, in you, filling you up from the inside out. What more could you ask for? You have Jesus. And so it's an unnecessary addition to the fullness of life that Christ has given you in the cross. But it's not just the fullness of life rooted in his person. And who he is, that's the fullness of the Godhead, pleased to dwell in bodily form. It's a fullness that's also rooted in what he did for you on the cross. And Paul breaks it out into three things. And I think maybe I only have time to get to a couple of them. But three things. The first thing is he says that on the cross, God gave you a new nature. A new nature. This is where he gets to in verses 11 through 13 when he says, "...in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands." in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, if you're a Bible student, maybe you're reading through the Hungry for the Word reading plan, you know all about circumcision from the Old Testament. God gave this covenant sign to the people of Israel in Genesis chapter 17 to be a physical representation of their privileged place as God's people. The Jews thought of the world in clear distinction. Two groups. On the one side, you had the circumcised. And on the other side, you had the uncircumcised. That's how they talked about it. And it even shows up in the New Testament, the so-called circumcision, right? But get this. The whole world thought of it that way. It was a clear dividing line of who belonged to the people of God and who did not. But it wasn't just a sign of their privileged place. It was also a symbol that demanded that they live up to 
their identity as God's people. Right? So God could tell them in Leviticus 19, You must be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Of all the people on the face of the earth, only Israel had the law of God. That was because they were His covenant people. And because of that, He expected that they would live up to their identity as His people. And so it was a pointer beyond itself to the life they were called to live. But then it goes beyond that. And we just recently read this in the book of Deuteronomy. That the sign of circumcision was also a metaphor for something deeper. And so Moses could tell the people in Deuteronomy 10, 16, to circumcise your hearts. That there was an internal condition that the physical act of circumcision was a metaphor for. And that was total heart consecration. To get rid of everything within them that was opposed to God so that they could be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. Warren Wiersbe calls this a physical procedure with spiritual significance. But here's the problem. Those two things were often separated. And so they thought that just because they had participated in the physical procedure, they had all the blessings of being the people of God. But it was never to be that way. The spiritual was always primary and was meant to be reflected in the physical act. And then we come to Colossians 2. And according to Paul, these Gentile believers who were at one time of the uncircumcision and clearly alienated from the people of God have now received the spiritual act. The thing that the physical was meant to point beyond now is theirs. He says, you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands through the removal of the body of the flesh. This phrase is important, the removal of the body of the flesh. The, the word flesh is the Greek word sarks. And when Paul uses this word, he almost always is referencing our natural sinful nature. The part of humanity that is alienated from God from the beginning and is turned in on itself, inclined towards selfishness and alienation from God. Paul says that that sinful body of the flesh has been removed. It's been taken away. And it all happened at the cross. You see, Paul also says in Romans chapter 6, verse 10, that the death Christ died, he died for sin once for all. And in Romans 6, if you want to turn there with me, you can. And in Romans 6, he goes into great detail about the implications for this act, this death. He says in verse 6, he says, Knowing that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died is freed from sin. There's a worldly wisdom tells you that if you really want to defeat those demons, you know, those besetting sins, as previous generations of Christians called them, you know, those things that you seem to can't get rid of, that you need to just buckle down, you know, white-knuckle it, against your temptations. Express some more willpower. The thing that's missing in your fight with sin is you getting serious about it and you getting after it. The Apostle Paul says that those things are lies. You really want to experience freedom from sin? You really want to get rid of that part within you that seems to always do the thing you don't want to do? 
You want to get rid of the part of you that always seems to sabotage every good deed you ever did. He said, it's already been done. It's already been crucified with Christ, and you have been set free from sin. Worldly wisdom says, try harder. But the gospel tells us that we were buried with Christ in baptism, and we were raised up with Him. That everybody who has been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. We have received a new nature. That's why He could say about you that if anybody's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Worldly wisdom tells us that if we really want to fight sin, these are the things you got to do. But the gospel tells us those are unnecessary additions to the fullness of life that Jesus has already secured for you in the cross. Your sins have already been dealt with, and you have been made new. you got a new nature. But then Paul says you also have a new life. A new life. A clean slate. A fresh start. See, before the Colossians were in Christ, Paul said in verse 13, they were dead. They were dead in their trespasses, in the uncircumcision of their flesh. You know, I think this word transgression is one of those that we sort of pass over sometimes and stop to think about. We don't stop to think about. You know, I, I even am guilty of it. Y'all hear me all the time. I talk about brokenness. And Jesus wants to heal our brokenness and put us back together again. And I believe that. We are broken and we need to be mended. But according to the Bible, the gospel tells us we're actually worse off than that. We are dead. Not broken, needing mending. We are dead, alienated from the life of God, totally separated from every good thing in the world. Left to ourselves, that's all we can expect. And so Paul talks about transgressions twice. And a transgression is simply this, not an act of brokenness, not a mistake, but a willful disregard for the law of God. And you and I know it, we're, we're created in the image of God, and so God implants within us this internal sense that there is a God, and because there is a God and we're not Him, then whoever that God is deserves everything we've got. But we neglect that, we, we refuse it, we shove it down and ignore it. But beyond that, God has actually revealed His standard, what He expects of us. And a transgression is violating that standard by either failing to do what his standard requires or not doing what his standard requires. And each one of us has a big long list of transgressions. Times when we knew what was right and we didn't do it, and times when we didn't know what was right and we didn't do it. That's the fact of it. We got a whole long list of transgressions. In fact, the Bible says repeatedly that God takes a record of our lives. The things we do, the thoughts we think, the words we say, and he writes them down in a book. The books show up so frequently, there must be a real book. He, he writes it down, a book. Paul calls it the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. I take that to be the long list, mine's longer than y'all's, the long list of all the transgressions I've ever committed. 
that God has folded up. It's like one of those fold-out pages. You turn to it, and it unfolds, and it's just a million miles long of all the things I've ever done to transgress God's standard. And Paul says that that list condemns me. It condemns me in the same way that a criminal is brought into an interrogation room and shown a video of them robbing the bank or committing the crime. Say what you want, criminal. We have video evidence that that's you. Or like the criminal who goes on Facebook, takes a picture with the stuff he stole from the lady's house. All the cop has to do is show him. You posted this, man. Don't try to get out of it. This is you, right? And God says, you got one of those. You got a long list. Plausible deniability does not apply. You got a long record you can't get out of. It's like an outstanding balance on an overdue bill. And you don't have the money to pay. What are you going to do? The just punishment for that kind of life, that kind of record, is death. The wages of sin is death. And so God has every right, and it's just to punish you for your transgressions. But instead, Paul says he didn't do that. Instead, he's seen that certificate of death consisting of decrees. He's seen the video evidence, your idiotic Facebook post, and he has wiped it away. Do you see that? Verse 14, he has taken it out of the way. He's canceled it. That's a cancel culture I can get behind. Cancel my sins, O Lord. And he said he did. Not by an executive order. Forgiving all debts that had been paid. By nailing it to the cross with his own son. What Paul, I think, is meaning here is you've probably seen the Jesus movies where Jesus is on the cross and above his head in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin is the inscription, King of the Jews. That wasn't like the nameplate that you'd see in the corner office identifying to everybody who comes in that this is the real king and you owe him respect. That was the inscription which told the crowds what that guy was being crucified for. He's being crucified because he claimed to be king of the Jews. Nobody would have denied that. That's exactly what that is. But Paul says that when God looked down from heaven on Jesus, he didn't see an inscription that said king of the Jews. The inscription he saw was your record of debt. He saw everything you ever did. Every thought you ever thought. Every word you ever said. That was what was inscribed above the head of Jesus as he suffered and died on the cross. It was your sins that held him there until it was accomplished. In my place, condemned he stood for my sins. That's what Paul says. He wiped it away. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross of Jesus. So you want to come at me and tell me that your philosophy is somehow the secret to a better life? Anathema, a curse, let it burn in the fires of hell forever. There is one way to find a happy 
satisfying, joy-filled life, and it is at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the only way. Worldly philosophies sound good, but they can never deliver on what they promise. They leave us a thousand times over, left right where we were at the start, trying to figure out what to do with the broken pieces of our lives. The only way to have new life is to know Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, guys, walk in Christ, rooted in Him, growing up in Him, refusing to allow anybody to take you captive by their philosophies. It's empty deception. It's just the traditions of men. It never comes through. You don't need their slogans. You don't need their mantras. You don't need their practices. You already have fullness of life through the cross of Jesus Christ. This morning, do you know that fullness of life? Or are you still searching for it? The Bible says that God designed you as a master artist would paint a painting, implanting within you a desire for something more. In fact, I love the way C.S. Lewis says it in the essay, God in the Dock. He says that we are alienated from God and we know it. And so we go about trying to satisfy our desires with sex and with food and with drink and all sorts of things that we're, we think are somehow going to fill the hole that we fill in our hearts. And you've probably tried to fill the hole with those things. You've tried them out. The world's philosophy, the world's wisdom says you just need to find somebody who's going to treat you right, who's going to accept you for who you are, who's going to let you be the person you're meant to be. When you find that person, everything will be all right. We know that's not true. C.S. Lewis says our desires aren't too strong. They are too weak. That we settle for those things like a little kid who's making mud pies in the street and ignores the offer for a vacation at the beach. God made you for more than the world's wisdom. And you know it. But you've abandoned His design. You've gone your own way a thousand times. I have too. And our pursuit of something more has resulted in deeper and deeper separation and alienation from God. You tried to satisfy with the world's wisdom, but you've ended up worse than before. And what the gospel says, what Paul says, what I've been preaching to you this morning, is that rather than God hoping like the monkey typing on the typewriter and eventually typing out Shakespeare, instead of God waiting around on you to finally put the pieces together and come to Him, he sent His Son, the fullness of God, dwelling in bodily form. And He lived the life that you were meant to live. And He died the death that you deserved. The inscription right above His head. And today, He invites you to receive the fullness of life that He's already secured for you. Jesus said it like this. He looked at the crowds. He said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. He satisfies every longing, every desire is fulfilled in Jesus. And so this morning, Jesus' invitation is for y'all, it's for me. I'm the bread of life. Come to me. He says, if anybody would, let them take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. Have you done that? 
This morning, Jesus would have you turn your back on the world's philosophies, the world's wisdom, the way of life you have so carefully constructed for yourself in order to provide you the sense of peace, satisfaction, security you long for. Following Jesus means crucifying that with him, giving yourself completely to him, saying, Jesus, where you go, I'm going to go. What you do, I'm going to do. means to believe that Jesus is able to provide what he said he's able to provide. Paul says in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He wants you to believe that he is God in human form, that he is able to satisfy your longings, and he wants you to trust him, letting go of everything else. Do you know Jesus' love, the fullness of Christ like that? Maybe you're like me. And I can think of a few times in my life when I had so drastically departed from the truth of Christ, trying to supplement my walk with God with other things, that I was miserable. I was a Christian. I knew Christ. I had prayed the prayer. I had been in church. But somewhere along the way, the world's wisdom, the deception, had gotten a hold of me. And I had started supplementing my faith in Christ with other things, with experiences, with friendships, with certain habits. Maybe you're there too. You know, I assume that when Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, he knew there would be two types of people in that church. People who needed Jesus for the first time and everybody else who needs Jesus fresh every day. You need to ask yourself, church, to what extent have I allowed the world's wisdom to pull me off course in my relationship with Jesus? Now, as a pastor in 2021, one of the easy things for me to say is, well, are you attending church? Could you attend church, but you aren't? You know, right now, they're telling us that as many as 40% of our pre-COVID church members will never come back to church. Why? Would it be that the world's wisdom has told them, hey, you know what? God knows. You don't have to be in church every week to have a relationship with God. And it's true, you don't. I want you to hear me, you don't. But at the same time, God's people like to be together. So you ask yourself this question. You ask yourself, how do I know if I have been deceived, pulled off course by the world's wisdom. You know, ask yourself, how central is the cross of Jesus in my life? How frequently do I reflect on what he did for me at Calvary? Is it on Sunday morning or is it an everyday type of thing? Do I live my life in light of what Christ has done for me? And you'll know that because Jesus said, if anybody would follow me, he'd take up his cross daily, deny himself and follow me. So are you living a kind of life like that? Are you denying yourself? Are you living sacrificially for Christ? If not, he'd also invite you to repent and believe. Then I got one more group. As I was going over this this morning, I was praying for you. And one specific group came to mind for me. And that's parents. Parents with grown adult children, with students little kids. 
And you know the simplicity that is in Christ. You know that your child's longings are met in Him. And though you did your best to lead them to Jesus, you've watched with a broken heart as your child has wandered from Him. And your desire more than anything else is that your kids would know Jesus. Listen, if that's you, if you got a child like that, would you raise your hand? You see the danger that if they stay on the course they're on. There's hope for them. Well, this morning, church, I want to pray for those kids, those children. Ask the Lord to continue pressing in on them and pulling them towards Him. And as I do, as I'm praying, why don't you pray your own prayer? Committing yourself to something simple. To live in a cross-shaped life. Rejecting the world's wisdom and living in the fullness of what Christ provides. Will you pray with me?